You may be seated. And when you are, please open your Bibles to the book of James. We are finishing the epistle today, Lord willing, unless he comes back in the middle of the service. If so, I won't complain. Um, What we're going to do is read the whole chapter, chapter 5. And we're going to be concentrating on verses 13 through 20 in the sermon, but we'll read the whole chapter. This is going to, I think the whole chapter, we have a tendency, I have a tendency to read the book of James, like Proverbs, like little dis. like little disconjoined units. And I, and I don't think that that's the right way uh, to read the book, honestly. And I, I think we see a flow, especially in chapter five, a flow of thought and of topic in, um, in the writer of James. And so what we're going to do is we're going to read the entire chapter. This is God's holy and inspired word. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields who you kept back by fraud are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, Do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Is any one among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain, 
and for three years and six months it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Let's pray. Lord, we would ask that uh, you would give us ears to hear as we meditate on your word and we hear it preached. Lord, um, it is true enough that anyone who could read English could read your word But it is also true that you say some have ears to hear and some do not. And you say that it is by the power of your spirit that we hear. And so we would call upon you, asking for your graciousness and your mercy. Lord, would you give us good hearing? Would you help us to hear every word that you speak to us? We would ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory's sake. Amen. I wonder how many of you have heard of George Muller. He lived from 1805 to 1898, and he was a man of God who was really known for two things, a large orphan ministry that he carried out in Bristol, England, and for being a man of prayer. And like so many of his age, Muller journaled. In fact, he kept detailed records of all of his prayers and how and when God answered them. And the chronicle of how God answers his prayers is it's inspiring, uh, quite frankly, and it's incredible. In November 1844, Muller wrote, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals I prayed every day without a single intermission, whether sick or in health, or on land or sea, and whatever the pressure of my engagements might be. A year and a half later, the first was converted. Five years after that, the second man was converted. And after an additional six years of daily prayer, the third man was converted. And many, many years later, Muller journaled, two remain unconverted. The man to whom God in his riches, in the riches of his grace, has given tens of thousands of answers to prayer, has been praying day by day for nearly 36 years for the conversion of these individuals, and yet they remain unconverted. But I hope in God I pray on and look yet for the answer. They are not converted yet, but they will be. Over the years, Moeller learned that God answers prayer faithfully. And this is the message that James wants the church to understand as he brings his letter to a close. You can see that in verse 17, he wants you to pray fervently like Elijah. He wants to encourage you to pray to the Lord who has the power to save you from suffering, sickness, and sin. And as you look at verse 13, you learn that you should pray fervently regarding suffering. That's our first heading. Pray fervently regarding 
suffering. As we read chapter five, you were reminded of the context of our passage. James addressed some of the hardships that members of his congregations were facing. Some of the unbelieving, rich, and powerful of his days were abusing the poor and taking advantage of them. In particular, he cites landowners who hired workers to harvest their fields and then withheld their wages. And what does he say after that? He says that God has heard their cries. He has heard the prayers of the harvesters and that he is going to come to their aid. In verses 7 through 12, he tells them, that is, James tells his congregations to wait patiently like a farmer, like the prophets, and like Job. And in verse 13, he says, is any among you suffering? Let him pray. But why do we suffer? Maybe that's an important place to start. The Bible says that God made this world good. There was absolutely no suffering. And he charged the first man, Adam, to keep it that way. And he warned Adam what would happen if he failed. But Adam sinned. We suffer because our forefather, Adam, disobeyed God. When Adam broke covenant with God, we fell with him. Adam brought the curse of God upon us all, even upon all of creation. Sin, sickness, death, suffering. This is the reason that Jesus, of course, came down from heaven. Jesus came to save you. He said that if you believe, that if you turn from sin, that if you commit your life to him, you will be forgiven and you will receive eternal life. That's what the cross is all about. Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. When you embrace Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you're declared righteous, forgiven, You're adopted as God's child, and that's because Jesus paid for your sins on the cross. He purchased you. He redeemed you. But God doesn't send an angelic Uber for you and take you straight to heaven, does he? No, instead, you remain here to serve him and to be his witness. You remain in this broken world, and that means that you continue to experience suffering. But you're given a promise in James chapter 1, verses 2 and 4. James said that you can rejoice when you are experiencing trials of various kinds because the sufferings that Christians experience aren't in vain. God takes them and he transforms them. God redeems your suffering and he uses it like a tool in order to shape you and mold your character 
to mature your faith and to sculpt you into the image of his son. Paul says something similar in Romans 5, verses 3 and 4. The apostle writes, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. You see, the suffering that we endure is not in vain. But suffering is definitely not easy. How can you hope to endure it? Where are you going to go to get strength? And where can you find rescue and relief? James says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. James points you to prayer as a tactic. He points you to prayer as a powerful weapon, not a passive resignation. If you're suffering, pray. In Acts chapter 12, it records a period of history where the church began to suffer. The text says that King Herod laid violent hands on the church And um, he kills the apostle John's brother uh, with a sword. And when he sees how much delight it gives the Pharisees in and the Sadducees, he um, captures Peter and throws him into prison. You see, Peter is next. He's delivered over to four squads of soldiers to guard him. Uh, Not only that, the text says that he's bound with chains with men on either side of him, soldiers on either side of him, and centuries guarding the door. Peter's situation uh, seemed hopeless, impossible to resolve. Acts 12.5 says, Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And how does God respond to their prayers? The prayers reach God's throne room and Jesus sends help immediately. Acts goes on to give a detailed account of how the Lord rescues Peter. Again, are you suffering? Are you in trouble? In trouble in some way, in, in some kind? Do you need the Lord's help? Do you need to be rescued? Pray. Verse 13 is calling you to be in constant contact with God. He says, that is James says, if you're suffering, pray. And if you're cheerful, give the Lord praise. No matter where you are, be in contact with him. This reminds us of the Apostle Paul's exhortation. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 17 and 18 says, Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. You've been given, you've been given a powerful connection to Christ that should cause you to pray without ceasing. God wants you to stop looking to yourself and to look to him 
for your needs? What does it mean to pray without ceasing? Remain conscious of your dependence upon God. Always live that way. From the heart, live that way. James wants the church to understand that there is great, great, great power in prayer. Therefore, he says that you should seek the prayers of others in the church, especially if you're sick. We should pray fervently regarding sickness. That's our second heading. Pray fervently regarding sickness. In verse 14, James writes, If anyone among you is sick, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. The information that James gives us in the text implies that he is referring to people with serious illness. Uh, Perhaps they are bedridden or are no longer able to gather with the church because it appears that they must call for the elders of the church to come to them. If they are bedridden, that also would explain why the elders are described as praying over them with the hope that God will raise them up. And you notice that part of the command is that the elders ought to anoint the sick person with oil. Why is oil used? It seems the answer is that the oil is symbolic The kings of the Old Testament were anointed with oil to symbolize that God's presence was with them. So if the oil is symbolic, it symbolizes the presence of God who heals. But prayer is the means or mechanism to tap into that power. As the elders pray, they anoint the sick person to symbolize that that person is being set apart for God's special attention and care. God provides healing, which is initiated by prayer. We see this in the life of King Hezekiah, don't we? In 2 Kings chapter 20, God sent the prophet Isaiah to inform King Hezekiah that he was going to die very soon. The Lord told Hezekiah to get his house in order because his case was terminal. And Hezekiah was absolutely crushed at this news. What did he do? He went immediately to the Lord in prayer. Scripture says that Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and that he wept bitterly, beseeching the Lord for his life. And before the prophet Isaiah was able to even get out of the king's palace, God answered Hezekiah's prayer and sent the prophet back to him, telling him that he would add 15 years to his life. In verse 15, James says that the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. 
What is the prayer of faith? Perhaps the best explanation is found in James chapter 1, verses 5 through 8. Maybe you remember that section of this text. In verse 5, James says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God. But there's one more qualification, isn't there? Faith. Verse 6 says, But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You see, James drives home the futility of doubt and unbelief by picturing the one who doubts as being on the sea as it rises and as it falls and as it spins and turns and moves by every impulse of the wind. Does the Lord demand perfect faith? No. You might remember that Jesus honored the stumbling faith of the distraught father who desperately sought the healing of his son. Do you remember what Jesus told him? Or what he told Jesus, rather? He said, I believe. Help my unbelief. If you pray to the Lord with genuine faith, are you guaranteed to be healed? No. You're invited to come before the Lord weeping bitterly like Hezekiah and pouring out your heart before him, but do so with the posture of humility like the Lord Jesus. When Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane, he knelt before his father in heaven and he prayed, not my will, but yours be done. James chapter four, verse 15, teaches this same principle. It teaches that from the heart, Christians ought to say, if the Lord wills and leave it in his hands. You'll notice that the last half of verse, in the last half of verse 15, James writes, and if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Sometimes we suffer illness because of sin. I used to be a part of the recovery world where men and women uh, would gather together, uh, men and women who were addicted to drugs and alcohol uh, would gather together in uh, in these meetings. And when you go to these meetings, you'll see a great many people who are suffering physical illness uh, due to uh, their time uh, in sin, abusing drugs and alcohol. You meet people with heart problems and liver problems and some uh, that have contracted hepatitis uh, B and C. James is saying if, if you're a believer and you're suffering with illness due to past sins, physical or emotional, you can come to the Lord and ask for healing and confess your sin. He says, if you're healed, you've not only been forgiven for sin, but you've also been restored. 
by God healing you. In verse 16, James says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. James makes it clear that the Christian life should not be lived apart from the community. Let me say that again because it's important. James makes it clear that the Christian life should not be lived apart from the community. Rather, you ought to be a member of the church and have people close enough to you that you allow them to inquire into your spiritual state. God intended prayer to bring the body together so that when one person falls ill physically or spiritually, others in the community can pray for them. Why? The prayer of a righteous person has great power in its working. The righteous person is a Christian who has the imputed righteousness of Christ. He's righteous because righteousness has been given to him. Christ's righteousness has been given to him. But he also lives an ethically righteous life. The prayer of a godly Christian is very powerful in the way it works. And as James continues, he illustrates the power of prayer. And he says that if someone is wandering, you should pray to the Lord and intervene in their lives. He says that you should pray fervently regarding sin. That's our third heading. Pray fervently regarding sin. A couple of weeks ago, We spoke about Elijah when we talked about having patience like a prophet. But here James points to him as an example of how powerful prayer is in the way it works. If you recall the incident in 1 Kings, you'll remember that King Ahab was an evil king and that the Lord sent Elijah to go and pronounce judgment upon him. Elijah carried God's message to Ahab and he told him that a drought, he was going to suffer a drought for three and a half years. In verse 17, James writes, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again. And heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. Notice that James is careful to mention that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. His ability to pray and obtain the results that he received didn't stem from him being different from us. They stemmed from his trust and confidence in God. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. You have the same ability to pray powerfully. And you'll notice that the text says that Elijah 
prayed fervently. In the original language, it says, in prayer he prayed. James reproduces a Hebrew idiom in Greek. The idiom is meant to demonstrate the intensity or the path or the passion wherewith he prayed. The point is Elijah was passionate as he poured his heart out. He prayed fervently. And he prayed in a similar way when three and a half years of judgment had passed and was coming to an end. In 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 42, it says that Elijah went to the top of Mount Carmel and he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. He fell before the Lord in a posture of humility, and he prayed fervently that the Lord would open the windows of heaven. And when he rose, he sent his servant to see if there was any evidence of rain. And after the seventh time, his servant saw a little cloud off in the distance. Scripture says that before long, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. The point is that prayer is powerful, and the Lord answers prayers, even these kinds of inconceivable prayers, prayers that seem impossible, like the ones that Elijah prayed as you look at the last verses of James, they, they seem to introduce a new topic, but they actually develop from previous themes like sin and illness and a need for healing. If the family of God is supposed to pray for the suffering and physically sick, Surely they must pray for those who are spiritually sick and wandering from the faith. And in our text, James goes further, saying that you should also pursue those who are wandering from the truth. In verse 19, he writes, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Believers fall away. They tend to fall away because they wander from the word of God, what James refers to in the text as the truth. It's usually a slow, gradual process. Perhaps, They're not very disciplined about their Bible reading. And then their church attendance begins to slip. When our hearts aren't regularly exposed to the word of God, they tend to grow cold. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1, the author of Hebrews says, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. And James says that the outcome of wandering is sin and possible death. What are we to do when we see a fellow believer wandering from the truth? We should try to help them. The Lord doesn't want us to give up on each other. 
We have received God's unmerited mercy. We should display a similar mercy to people who are wandering. Do you remember the parable of the lost sheep and the lost coin? What did Jesus say about those who wander? How does God feel about those who are lost? How does he describe godly character? In the parable of the lost sheep, he describes a faithful shepherd who searches for the lost sheep. And when he is found, he embraces it and he carries it, rejoicing. And in the parable of the lost coin, again, he describes someone who is willing to spin themselves in order to save what is lost. He describes them as someone who searches diligently. And when the coin is found, it's picked up and it's held. And then he rejoices that he has found what is lost. This is the heart of God for the lost, and it should be ours as well. If you are going to help a fellow believer who is wandering from the truth, you should start by praying. James has just reminded us the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Pray that God will give you boldness and gentleness, and wisdom, and opportunity. And pray that God would begin to work in the heart and the life of the person who is wandering. Pray that he'll prepare their hearts and give them ears to hear. Pray the Lord would change their hearts and that he would lead them back to his embrace. As James wraps up this epistle, he points his congregation to the power of prayer. His goal is to encourage the church to pray to the Lord who has the power to save them from suffering and from sickness and sin. He understands that there is many of you, there's many of you, and you're all in different places in life. Some of you are suffering. Others of you are rejoicing. Some of you are healthy and strong. Others are battling serious health issues. Some are thriving spiritually. Others are going through a dry season spiritually. Maybe you can sense that your heart is starting to wander. The word of God is pointing you to prayer. Pray. 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 Rely upon the Lord. Call upon him to rescue. When we began, I told you about a man of prayer named George Moeller. You remember he prayed daily for the salvation of five men, but after decades of prayer, two remained unconverted. Moeller had witnessed God answer so many prayers 
So many prayers that he said, they are not converted yet, but they will be. Well, those two men were still unconverted when he died in 1897. By that time, Moeller had been praying daily for their salvation for more than 52 years and documenting all of it. But Moeller's prayer was answered, however, when both of these men came to faith in Christ only a few years after his death. Pray. Pray fervently regarding suffering and sickness and sin. God answers prayer. Amen. Lord, we would come to you and we would confess that we don't pray as we ought. Lord, we would ask that you would give us hearts of prayer. Lord, that you would give us hearts to sit before your presence. You know, though, how we struggle when we pray, our minds wander everywhere. We pray and then we catch ourselves thinking about this or that and we come back, Lord. It is hard to keep these broken minds of ours focused on you. We pray that you would give us a strong desire to sit before you and pray. Lord, we pray that you would give us the ability to pour out our hearts before you fervently. Lord, you know we need you. We'd ask for your help. Lord, would you make this a praying church? Would you give us a heart of prayer? And would you help us to establish those relationships among us where we can confide in one another and lift one another up in prayer? Lord, help us to be reliant upon you and to use this great privilege that you have given us. And Lord, you know that people have wandered. People have wandered away. And it's so difficult, Lord. We don't know what to say. We're afraid to be offensive. We want to be inviting. Lord, we lift them to you. All of those um, who are wandering, we think of prodigal children. We think of people who are on our own membership roles we haven't seen in church attendance for months, maybe over a year. Lord, would you help us? Would you help us to make contact? Would you give us a heart for the lost and for the wandering? Lord, we pray that you would be doing a work in their hearts even now, that you'd be preparing their hearts. And would you give us boldness and the opportunity and the desire to seek them out, not to give up on the lost, but to have a heart like you. Lord, we need you. We'd ask that you would hear our prayer and that you would help us. In Jesus' name, amen.